I may have to calm down for a minute before I preach. I, I had a contact about fell out, and it was, uh, it was, it was bad. I had to listen to Justin singing. He had to listen to me sing. So it may take a minute or, or three for me to. Uh, yeah, and then I, I ate too much at, at breakfast. So um, it's, it's one of those days. But it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. And if you would please uh, turn your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As we enter into the chapter that uh, someone has said, angels fear to tread, and uh, humans struggle to understand. Uh, as Paul is going to enter back into the problem that existed in the church at Corinth, namely in their worship service, and it involved the misuse and the abuse of the spiritual gift of tongues. Let me say this on the outset uh, before we get into it. It is not my intention to bemean, it is not or belittle, to mock, to make those who may disagree with me or us feel inferior or to uh, make, you know, to make light of others' beliefs. But as I stand in the sacred desk this morning, I have one obligation, and that's an audience of one, and that is to teach. Rightly divide and proclaim God's word uh, as it is here. So don't think I am thrown off on any particular denomination as we study this passage of scripture. Uh, there are people I disagree with on this issue that I consider my dear brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is a family matter in the body of Christ. And so the issue of tongues is a touchy issue. And what I want to do this morning is not read the entire text and then work through it. I want you to keep your Bible open uh, to the text, and we'll work our way through it point by point as we go throughout the text. But the, I want us to start thinking about tongues hundreds of years before Jesus ever arrived on this earth. There was an Old Testament prophet by the name of Joel who preached to the nation of Israel, after a devastating swarm of locusts had come in and devastated the land, Joel was a doomsday prophet in a sense of speaking woe upon the people of God. And so his message was one of judgment, that if you think that a swarm of locusts coming in and destroying the land is bad, you ain't seen nothing yet because there's going to come an invading army like those locusts, into the land. And they are going to destroy you far worse than the locusts ever did. Yet in the midst of this message of doom and gloom and judgment, he gives hope for the people of God. Hope for those who would repent. Hope for those who would trust in Christ. And that hope was summed up in a promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Joel tells God's people, in chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. That promise filled the hearts of God's people with hope. There's coming a day when God's spirit will not just be poured out upon the prophet, not just be poured out upon the priest, and will not just be poured out upon the king. 
But there's coming a day when God's Spirit will indiscriminately be poured out upon all of God's people. Male servants, female servants, doesn't matter of sex, doesn't matter of nationality. All of God's people will one day be filled with God's Spirit. And that promise anchored God's people and that promise gave hope to God's people. Fast forward a few hundred years to the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus tells them, his disciples, that the day Joel promised is very soon coming. For he tells his disciples, I've got to go away, but I'm going to pray to the Father. And he's going to send you another comforter who will abide with you and he will be in you forever. Jesus spoke of the dawning of a new day in redemptive history. And that dawning meant that the Spirit of God would no longer come upon someone and empower them for a task and then leave them as he did in the Old Testament. But now the Spirit of God would come and abide forever in the people of God. The Spirit of God would be to us inwardly what Jesus was to the disciples outwardly, the comforter. But when would it happen? When would this day arrive? You fast forward about 40 days after the resurrection of Christ. He is with his disciples, about 120 in Jerusalem. And he gives them a strange command. Wait in Jerusalem until you be, the King James says, endued with power from on high. But you be filled with power from on high. And what would be this empowering force or this empowering person? The empowering person would be the Holy Spirit. For Jesus says, you will receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here's the reason why. And you will be my witnesses in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus gave a commission to his disciples. Take the gospel to all peoples. And now, through the Holy Spirit of God, Jesus would empower his disciples to obey his command to take the gospel To all peoples. So the disciples wait in an upper room. Some say about 10 days. It makes sense. Uh, Jesus stayed with them 40 days after the resurrection. Pentecost was, was 50 days after. And so about 10 days or so afterwards, they're gathered together in an upper room. And Acts 2 describes it for us. That there was an audible sound. There came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind. There was... Something visible. There was divided tongues that appeared above the disciples. And then there was something audible. Those 120 people in that upper room began to speak, Scripture says, in other tongues. The Bible makes this distinction. That on that day, there were gathered together in Jerusalem devout men from all nations on the earth. And Luke being a doctor is very meticulous. He tells us in Luke 2 that there were, there were people, there were Parthenians, there were Medes, there were Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya. There were people from Rome gathered there that day, Cretans and Arabians. And they all had one response. It was a question that they asked How is it that we hear 
each of us in his own language. Here are people gathered from all over the globe in Jerusalem. And as they're there, they see 120 Jews from Jerusalem. And they hear them. And you know what they hear? They hear them telling in their own tongue, their own language, the mighty works of God. They don't know how that's even possible. Those men have never learned their languages. They never heard what they said. They never went to their schools. They don't know. These are fishermen, tax collectors, Galileans. How can they speak our language? And so they decide those men must be drunk. They've got to be drunk. And Peter stood up in their midst. And, and, and how about this for an introduction to a sermon? Hey, we're not drunk. <laughs> That's a good sermon introduction. But he says, I'll tell you what this is. You want to know what this is? This is what was promised by the prophet Joel. Saying in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will see visions. Your young men will dream dreams. And I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter is saying, what you see now is the fulfillment of God's promise through the prophet Joel. You know, there are a lot of people who say that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on people. They'll see visions, hear, have dreams. No, that's not biblically accurate because those last days began at Pentecost. Peter says, this, what you see now, is that what Joel said in the Old Testament. This is that. Because what happened there was in redemptive history, God's spirit would now be poured out upon his people without discrimination. And one of the gifts that the spirit brought to the early church was the ability to speak the gospel in a language, a human language, that they had never learned before. Now listen, when you read Acts 2, you cannot get out of Acts 2 some heavenly, ecstatic language that's just between a person and God and not other people. Three times in Acts 2, they say, we hear them in our native language. We hear them in our native tongue. Glossalia is used, the Greek word, where we get our word glossary from. Dialecta is used, where we get the word dialect from. And they are both saying that we hear them in our dialect. We hear them in our language. So the gift of tongues, according to Scripture, is the supernatural God-given spirit ability to speak in a language, a human language, that a person has never learned before for the purpose of spreading the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the question. Why was tongues such an issue in Corinth? Why is it of all the letters in the New Testament Paul writes to all the churches only Corinth seems to be having an issue with tongues. Well, you have to understand something about Corinth. And don't forget, the purpose of tongues is to take the gospel to the nations. So you'll be able to spread the gospel to the nations. Well, what God did at Corinth was unique. He did not send people from Corinth to the nations. He brought the nations to Corinth. You see, Corinth was a very strategically located city. Uh, it was a port city that was located on the isthmus between mainland Greece and the Peloponnese. It was about four or five miles wide in length, the isthmus was. And sailors from all over the world would come in from the east, dock on one side of the isthmus, unload their cargo, take it mainland all the way over to the other side, reboard it on another ship, and take off again. 
uh, reason they would do this was because the travel around the Peloponnese was, was dangerous. Uh, it was long. It saved time. It saved money. And uh, it's just easier traveling four miles across, across land than it is to go all the way around, uh, all the way around in the sea. And so what happened as a result is that Corinth thrived. Corinth was a booming city. And Corinth was filled with people from all different nationalities. It would be very common in the church at Corinth to walk in on a Sunday morning and to the church to be filled with people from many different nations, all speaking many different languages. And so God graciously gifted certain members in this church with the ability to speak in other languages so that the people at the church could have been able to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But just like everything else in Scripture, when man gets involved with it, we soon disrupt that which God, his purpose and his intent truly is. So what happens? Well, what happens is some people in Corinth, they start fighting and bickering amongst one another. Those who've been given the gift of tongues start saying, hey, I'm better than you because I can speak in tongues and you can't. And in the worship service, Things started getting out of hand. Uh, Holy Spirit fires very soon turned into wildfire. Uh, there were people who were speaking in tongues without an interpreter present. And so nobody knew what in the world was being said. There were some people who were attempting to pray in tongues. So nobody could amen the prayer because nobody knew what was being prayed for. And it caused confusion it caused chaos rather than building up, rather than edifying, and rather than its stated purpose, which is to make God's people witnesses for him to the ends of the earth. And so, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul attempts a little correction by instruction. And what he is going to do in this passage is he's going to correct the Corinthian problem with tongues, or attempt to, by comparing tongues and contrasting tongues with the gift of prophecy. Now, what's the difference? Now, understand when I'm speaking about tongues in this passage of Scripture, I'm speaking about the way they mis misused and abused tongues. They spoke in it without any interpreter present. No one knew what was being said. And Paul contrasts that with the gift of prophecy. Now, prophecy is the clear, concise speaking of God's Word. It's spoken clearly. It's spoken uh, to instruct, and people understand what's being said. And so Paul is going to show us why prophecy was superior to tongues in order to try and correct the tongues problem. But here's something else he gives us in this passage. He gives us in these first 25 verses a, a beautiful guide as to what should be included in a worship service. You know, when we gather together here at Lakeville, what should we seek after? What should be our aim? What should we make sure are non-essentials when it comes not just to what we proclaim, but how we proclaim it? What should we aim for when we gather together as a body? And so what I want to do is from this passage, I want to show us four components of a biblical worship gathering that Paul highlights and as we look at those, we're also going to dissect the difference between tongues and prophecy to see why Paul says prophecy is much superior to that of tongues. So what's the first component? Well, the first component Paul mentions in verses 1 through 5 is what I call edification. 
When the church gathers together, there must be edification. Now, he begins verse 1 with a twofold command. First, pursue love. By the way, Paul's just finished 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love. And he's saying, as I get into this sticky part of the letter, don't forget to love me. <laughs> okay? Don't get mad at me. Don't kill the messenger. Love me. I love you. And so I'm telling you the truth. So pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. In other words, here's what Paul's saying. I want you to desire spiritual gifts. You should want to have spiritual gifts and use spiritual gifts. But if you want them, I tell you the best one you could have is that of prophecy. Is that of specifically and clearly declaring God's word. Because Paul knows this, and he'll say it to us in, in a roundabout way in these verses, that the gift of prophecy builds up the church, but the gift of tongues does not. Now let's finish reading what he says here. Verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding up and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. So the church may be built up. Did you notice in verse 4, Paul speaks of building up the church? And in verse 5, at the end, the reason someone who speaks in tongues needs an interpreter is so that the church may be built up. Now, when we talk about edifying, we're talking about building someone up. That's where we get our word edifice from, a building. And when the church gathers, there should be spiritual building that is going on. But how does it take place? Well, in order for there to be edification, first there must be clarity. You must have clarity if you're going to build someone up. Now, as they spoke in tongues at Corinth, no one was being built up because no one understood. Someone was speaking, but it was a mystery to everyone there. No one got it. Now, I've asked Sister Deb to do something. Now, she may get nervous and pass out, but uh, if you do that, just say we were talking in tongues and passing out and everything at Lakeville on Sunday morning, okay? <laughs> Sister Deb, show's yours. You can stand up where we can see you and hear you. Didn't that just bless your socks off? <laughs> Don't you want to say, amen, praise the Lord, thank God. You know what? You have no idea what she said. I do. Not, that I, not because I've got the gift of interpretation, but because I asked her to quote it. She quoted John 3.16 in Spanish. That's what it was. It was in Spanish. John 3.16. But you know what? Even though she quoted a verse we know by heart, it was a mystery to us because we didn't know what in the world she was saying. And what Paul is saying here when he says whoever speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to people, but he speaks to God, he is not speaking of some type of heavenly language between a person and God. God speaks English just fine. 
Did God know Deb was quoting John 3.16? Absolutely. He speaks Spanish as well. <laughs> but I didn't know it. Nobody else knew it. And she might as well have been speaking to the air, Paul says, as to been speaking that to us. Paul says those who speak in a tongue and nobody knows what's being said, God gets it, but the church doesn't, and you're not built up. But with prophecy, he says everyone gets it. You hear what's being said there. There is clarity, and they are speaking to people. Then Paul says you don't just need clarity, but also you shoot for comfort. You know, even though she quotes John 3.16, the gospel in a nutshell, it didn't comfort anybody. You know why it didn't comfort anybody? Because you're sitting there thinking, what in the, one, you're thinking, what in the world she's saying? And number two, you're thinking, has Justin lost his blessed mind? <laughs> What's going on here at Lakeville this morning? Reason being, we had no idea what she's saying. But look what Paul says in verse 3 about prophecy. He says that, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Their upbuilding builds people up spiritually. Their encouragement, it picks them up and gives strength to them and consolation. That it gives help to those who are hurting. You know, and when Paul says, I'd like for everybody to speak in tongues, basically what he's saying, wouldn't it be great if everybody could speak in different languages and take the gospel to everybody else? That would be great. But I've got news for you. I'd rather that you prophesy, unless you got an interpreter. And if we had an interpreter, then we could clearly understand what it was that she was saying. So whenever we gather together as a church, unlike the church at Corinth, there must be clarity. Everybody needs to know what's going on and what's being said because when there's clarity, there is comfort there. There's encouragement there. There's building up there. There's consolation that takes place. So the first component of worship is that of edification. All right, And then second, there is what I, can, what I call the component of participation in verses 6 through 12. Worship, especially congregational worship, is a congregational activity. It is not an individual activity where someone says, you know what, I just go to church to worship God myself. No, you worship God Monday through Sunday anyway in everything that you do. There is something unique about the worship gathering where individuals come together as one body to worship Christ together. There is a corporate, there is a congregational aspect to the worshiping of God as one body. And what was happening in Corinth is you had some believers who were going rogue. They were doing their own thing. They were saying, oh, I'm just worshiping God. As a matter of fact, when, when, when the urge hits me to speak in tongues, I just can't quit it. I'm following the Spirit. I ain't following people anyway. Let me tell you something. The very fact that Paul puts guidelines on tongues is indication enough that the person who is blessed with the gift is in control of when it's used. You're, they have to be in control of when it's used. Um, otherwise, telling them not to do it would have been somewhat counterproductive. And so what Paul says is, okay, all right, when you gather together, you have to think about others participating in it. Because look in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation and no, or knowledge or prophecy or, or teaching? Now, what's that mean? What that means is this, if I come to you and I speak in a foreign language, what benefit is that to you? What if, what if I preached an entire sermon in Spanish? I guarantee you wouldn't be leaving Lakeville and saying, you know what, 
Boy, Justin, he really shelled some corn today. I mean, he really preached the heavens down today. I feel so much better that I went to church today because I didn't understand one single thing he said. Some people might think that way, but, uh, you know, I didn't understand a thing. You know what it does? It leaves you out. You're not participating in worship because part of worship is listening and receiving the word of God. That's an act of worship. And so here's what he's going to do. He is going to give us some instruction here about how others participate and how clarity is vital for participation in worship. First, he's going to show us that we should avoid confusion at all costs. He says, you know, if I come speak in a tongue, it'd be better if I brought revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. In other words, if I spoke distinctly rather than in something you didn't understand. You would be much better off. And so here's what he does. He gives us an illustration from real life. Verse 7 in, from the musical world. He says, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Now he says, now think about music. In music, for you to understand music, the person has to hit the right note with the right time and in the right sequence in order for us to be able to understand what's being said. All right. Debbie put on a show. I'm going to put on a show. Maybe. Nope, it's dead. All right. You've been spared my rendition of Amazing Grace. I promise you, it was bad. <laughs> bad. Because all I was going to do was walk over there and hit some buttons. Hit some keys. And I was going to tell you that was amazing grace. And you know what? It wouldn't have sounded one thing like amazing grace. You know why? I don't know how to play the piano. I wouldn't have hit the right note and the right time and the right sequence to let you understand I'm playing amazing grace. Now, if you need the first line of blessed assurance, I'm your guy. I can play blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. I just forget, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. That's where I get off the track at. But he's saying in music. It takes distinction to know what's being said. And then he moves from music to the area of military. Look what he says in verse number 8. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Now he gets more serious and he says, notice this. If, because in that day and time, they, they, you know, the way they gave orders and battles was through the sounding of bugles and the sounding of trumpets. And he says, if you are in battle and the bugle gives an indistinct sound, you're not... No, you're not going to know what to do, whether it's a call to war, whether it's a call to retreat, whether it's a call to rest, you're not going to know. They each had their distinct sounds. How terrible would it be if the sound, if the person blowing the trumpet meant retreat, and yet it was so indistinct that the people thought it meant go fight? It would be a slaughter. And so Paul says it takes distinction in order for us to understand what to know and, and to get the instructions we need. Now, Paul's going to pull this together in verse 9. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not uh, intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Paul says, if I don't know what you're saying, how can I know what you're saying? And Paul says, I can't know what you're saying. So you might as well be speaking in an empty room, speaking into the air. Speaking in a tongue I don't understand is like playing an instrument without hitting distinct notes, and it's like blowing a bugle uh, without distinct sounds. 
you're not going to know what's going, to, what's going on, and you're going to be confused. So Paul says, in worship, avoid confusion, but also avoid alienation. Don't alienate people. Look what he says in verse number 10. Verse 10. There are doubtless many different languages. Now stop right there. Again, a good indicator that Paul is not talking about some heavenly, ecstatic language, but he's talking about a real language. Because he says there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive, command, strive to excel in building up the church. Have you ever felt out of place somewhere? You know, you go somewhere and, and maybe it's a cultural shock and you just feel like a fish out of water. Well, Paul says, if you go into a church and everybody's speaking a different language, you're going to feel like an alien. You're going to feel like an outsider. And listen, church should never be the place where anyone comes to worship God and they feel like an outsider. They feel alienated from the people. Because the church, is, the church is the place where aliens come together to be one. It's where, it's where sinners gather together to praise God for his grace. It's where the wretched gather together to praise God for his mercy. And no one, no matter how sinful or how terrible they are, ought to feel out of place in the worship of God if they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by alienating somebody by speaking in a language that they don't know. Paul says you have made them a foreigner in your midst. So here's what I want you to do. Quit alienating people. Quit confusing people and strive. You want to strive for something? You want to be excellent at something? Be excellent at this, in building up the church. So make it to where everyone participates and there's no aliens. Third component is the component of information. You see, now Paul's going to show us in verses 13 through 19 that the gift of tongues inform, or the gift of prophecy informs the body, but the gift of tongues does not. Now, look what he says here in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Now, what he's saying is, uh, if you're going to speak in tongues, pray for interpretation as well. Pray that someone there, even you, can interpret what's being said. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, this could be something what they're saying, that when, when it takes over, I just, I just lose all track of thought and, and uh, I, I just let it go. Uh, and, and I've even heard people describe it that way, that uh, it just bubbles up and it just flows out and, and they don't even know what they're saying. And Paul says, wait a minute. If that's the case, then your mind's unfruitful. Now, should we really shoot for unfruitfulness of mind when we gather together to, to worship God? Paul says no. Paul says no. When we gather together, there needs to be a fruitfulness of mind. Look what he says in verse 15. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. In other words, he's saying there is no Dichotomy. There is no dividing up between praying in my spirit and praying with my mind that you do both. You do both at the same time. You are praying with your spirit and you're praying with your mind at the same time. And he says, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will 
sing with my mind also. Here's what he's saying. It's as impossible to pray without your mind as it is to sing without your mind as well. All right? There must be a fruitfulness of mind whenever we gather together in a worship service to pray and to sing, and our minds must be engaged. Church is a place where you ought to have to think. Some people just want to come lay back and just let her go, and, and, and they don't want to think at church. Church is a place for thinking because we deal with spiritual truths at church. So as we gather, information goes out. There should be one fruitfulness of mind. Second, there should be inclusion of others. All right. Again, he goes back to what he's saying before about making other people alienated in the worship service. Look what he says in verse 16. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be given thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Now, Paul says, just listen to a little common sense. If you get up and you speak in a tongue and nobody understands what in the world you're saying, and let's say you're thanking God for what he's done for you, and you're legitimately thanking God for what he's done for you, there's not a person in the church that can amen that because they don't know what you're saying. You know, the word amen is a word that means so let it be. All right, it's a word of affirmation. It's a word of agreement. Whenever I'm preaching, if, I'm say, if I say something that is true and you say amen, number one, I'd fall over with shock, <laughs> but, but, but you can say amen to the preacher. Somebody once said saying amen to the preacher is like saying sick them to a bulldog. We'll, we'll preach fast and quit fast. But two, what you're doing is you're saying that's the truth. Let that be. That is true. Now, what if I got up and preached my sermon in Spanish? What if I preached it in Latin? Could you say amen to it? Not if you didn't understand what I'm saying. And so do you see how, again, that excludes people from the congregation, excludes them from prayers? He says, I can't even say amen to the prayer if I don't understand what you're saying. What if I am saying amen to something, let it be, that is completely false? I don't know that. Now, Paul gives the speaker the benefit of the doubt here, and he says, you're genuinely giving praise to God. So if the speaker genuinely gives praise to God, and I don't understand it, I still can't say amen to it. And then Paul lets them in on this secret. By the way, I know what I'm talking about. And I love this about Paul when he deals with the Corinthians. Every now and then, he flashes his credentials card. All right? Whenever he gets over into 2 Corinthians and he writes that next letter to him, listen, it drips with sarcasm, and he, he goes off on them a few times. Um, but here, he's like, oh, just in case you don't think I know what I'm talking about, well, guess what? I speak in tongues more than any of you all. all right? I'm the expert at it. By the way, I'm the one traveling the gold globe, taking the gospel to different people. I speak in tongues a whole lot more than you do, so I know exactly what I'm talking about here, okay? And by the way, if Paul controlled himself when, with using this gift, he has every right to say it to the church here at Corinth is causing confusion. And notice what he says here, how he sums this up. Do you notice what he says in verse 17? For you may be given thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Again, it goes back to that goal of worship is to edify someone else, to build up someone else, to put someone else's spiritual health, their spiritual well-being on the top shelf. 
My worship is not just about me. My worship is about you. It's about the brothers and sisters I worship with as well to build you up, to encourage you. That's what we are here for. And then in verse 19, he says, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. By the way, that word instruct in the Greek is the word we get our word catechism from. It means to instruct. It means to teach. And what Paul is saying, if I had to choose, if I had to choose between 10,000 words in a tongue and five words that could be understood, I choose the five. No question asked. Sister Debbie quoted John 3.16. Gospel in the nutshell. I could have done better with five words to where you could have understood it than what she did quoting John 3.16, Scripture. Why? Because you could understand what I say. You couldn't understand what she said. Now, if there was someone here who spoke Spanish, they would get it. But we wouldn't get it. And so Paul says, I'd rather speak five words that are clear, that can be understood, than 10,000 in a tongue that nobody can understand. So that's information. Fourthly, and I'll hurry, the fourth component of a worship gathering is the component of evangelization. Again, this takes us back to the very root of the purpose of tongues. Now, understand this. Paul is speaking here particularly not of the gift of tongues on the mission field, where God intended for it to be, but he's, using, he, he's speaking here of the use of tongues at Corinth in a public gathering. And he wants them to know that when it comes to the gathering, that the gift of prophecy leads to the conversion of unbelievers, but the gift of tongues, without proper interpretation, leaves the unbeliever exactly the way they are. Now notice what he says in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants and in evil, but in your thinking be mature. What does that mean? Well, well, first, Paul's calling them out here, and he wants us to know as well as them that a constant focus on tongues is a sign of spiritual immaturity. It's a sign of spiritual immaturity. I mean, there's a, I had a guy in Indiana one time. I was preaching up there. And he made it a point to pull me over to the side. And uh, he told me, he said, listen, God's going to really use you. But I tell you what can take you to the next level. I said, what's that? He said, if you'll be baptized with the Holy Ghost, then, then, then you can take off. And uh, it kind of threw me off. And then I got mean. I said, oh, I've already been baptized. His eyes got real big and bulged out. He said, you have? I knew it that you had. And, and uh, he said, when did it happen? I said, when I, when I got saved. He said, you got it that instantaneously? I said, I sure did. He said, do you speak in tongues a lot? And I said, I never have. And he just looked at me. And he said, I thought you'd been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I said, oh, I have been. Well, then you never spoke in tongues. I said, no, I haven't. He said, how have you been baptized then in the Holy Spirit? I said, because Paul said, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. I got my spiritual baptism when I got saved. And he just looked at me. Lowered his head and left and never come back. <laughs> uh, but, but there are some, that is all they want to talk about, is, is speaking in tongues. Um, and it's still a problem in today's church world. And uh, so Paul wants us to know, listen, there are so many more important things for us to focus on, to think about, 
uh, and to, to let our heart and our affections go toward than tongues. And again, remember, this is the only letter Paul writes to. The only church Paul had to mention tongues in, and he mentions tongues because it was a problem. And he says, y'all are acting like a bunch of babies when it comes to this stuff. Don't be children in your thinking. Now, when it comes to evil stuff, be infants. But, but in your thinking, be mature. Grow up a little bit, Paul's saying here, and quit whining and worrying about, about this spiritual gift that's dividing you. But secondly, Paul wants them to understand that tongues were a sign of unbelief. Now, what does that mean? Well, look in verse 21. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, what is that all about? Well, here he quotes Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. A little background in the Old Testament. God had sent Isaiah to his people, and Isaiah had clearly proclaimed that judgment was coming. A foreign nation is going to come, invade, and take them captive, just as the Assyrians did with Israel in 722 B.C. And Judah wouldn't listen. And so God says, fine. You won't listen to my preacher when he's telling you plainly, you'll listen to a nation that I'll send you to, and you won't understand a word they say. So when the Babylonians come in and they invade Judah and they carry Jerusalem off captive, the children of God who are carried back into captivity don't understand one thing their captors are saying. And as they hear them speak in another tongue, it is a reminder to them that judgment has come. They had rejected God's call to repent. They had rejected God's prophet. And now the speaking of another tongue was a sign of their unbelief and of their judgment. And did not the same thing occur with the nation of Israel in the first century? God sends not a prophet, but the prophet like unto Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sends not a king, but the king of Israel, the son of David. He sends uh, not some priest, but the high priest called forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what does Israel do? They reject the king. And what does Jesus do? He promises them judgment for rejecting him. And in between their rejection and in between their judgment, God pours out his spirit and they hear other people speaking in other languages and it should have been a reminder to them. When this happened to our nation in Isaiah's day, it was a message of judgment. We'd better repent. Every now and then you'd see 5,000 repents, 3,000 repents, thousands get saved, but on the whole, Israel doesn't get saved. And you know what happens? Less than 40 years from the day of Pentecost, Rome invades Jerusalem, destroys the city of Jerusalem, plows down the temple, and judgment that Jesus predicts comes. And Paul says, wake up. What God is doing through the Spirit and you hearing other people speak in other languages, it should be a reminder to you that judgment is coming. It's a sign of unbelief. But thirdly, Paul says, the tongues leave people, sadly, in unbelief. Look what he describes, this scenario. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your minds? What's he saying? What good? What good would it do... Somebody who lived in the head of a holler in McGoffin County to come to church 
and me preach an entire sermon in, in Spanish. Katie do the scripture reading in Greek, and he, Greek or Hebrew. Somebody else says something else in Latin. Somebody else says uh, something else in, in Greek. You know what they'd do? They'd say, that whole bunch has lost their blessed minds. I went to church and I didn't hear one single thing. I didn't understand one thing that they said. How can they hear the gospel and be saved? They can't. And so they don't just come to church and not hear the gospel and leave lost. They leave and they even have a bad taste in their mouth about the church. You know what this unbeliever's response would be to the church at Corinth? They're crazy. <laughs> They're mad. They don't need to gather in a church. They need to go to an insane asylum. That's where they need to go. Paul said that would be their response. And he doesn't say their response is bad either. He just knows that's their natural response to what it would be if they came and everybody spoke a different language. And thus they couldn't hear the gospel. So they couldn't be saved. But Paul wants us to know that prophecy leads to conversion though. Verse 24, but if all prophesy, that is, if they clearly speak God's word and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. So, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Do you see the beauty in that? Do you see the glory in that? This final scenario is one where an unbeliever walks into the church house and someone clearly presents the gospel to that individual. And Paul says there are some wonderful things that take place when the gospel is clearly presented and proclaimed where people can understand it. He says what takes place is conviction because he says they, he is convicted by all. He's called to account. Do you remember what it was like before you were saved and you'd go to church and you'd swear that somebody told you, told the preacher everything you'd done the week before? I mean, you get mad at your spouse and you'd say, if you'd quit telling that preacher what I've been doing, I'd go to church. But everything I do, he gets up there and tells everybody about all my sins. Is that the preacher? No, that's the gospel. That's the Holy Spirit of God convicting an individual. And that's the Holy Spirit of God calling that individual to account. There is a calling to account that you must repent and you must believe the gospel. Then there also is contrition because look what he says. He falls on his face after the secrets of his heart are exposed and he knows he's guilty before God, he falls on his face. That's an act of repentance. You bow down before God and then there's true conversion because he says that he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Do you know what the Great Commission's all about? The Great Commission is about turning God's enemies into worshipers of God. That's what conversion is about. That's why conversion is great. Because someone who once was alienated from God is now a worshiper of God. How does it happen? It happens when the gospel is clearly articulated to where people can understand it. So why is that so important? And here's why. Because God has ordained that people be saved no other way than by hearing the gospel and believing the gospel. Faith comes by what? Hearing. And hearing by what? The word of God. And so, I want to wrap up this morning, not with a tongue, <laughs> but with a clear presentation of the gospel message that Paul's so worried about in 1 Corinthians 14. 
If you've never heard the gospel before, give me three minutes. Let me tell you the gospel. The gospel means good news, but it starts off as bad news. And the bad news is this, that man is lost and away from God, rebellious and considered God's enemy. When Adam sinned, all of Adam's posterity, all of his race sinned in him. And you stand before a holy God, guilty and justly condemned, a sinner who deserves hell. That's all of us. And the news is worse. We can't fix that condition ourselves. No amount of good deeds, no amount of good works, no amount of money given, no reformation that takes place in our life where we turn over a new leaf can fix that. We are helpless to save ourselves. The gulf between God and us is too great and we can't close the chasm. And we're doomed. But the good news is God has taken action to do what we cannot do. 2,000 years ago, God sent his only begotten son into this world as a man. He was born of a virgin and he lived a sinless life where we could not live it. He goes to the cross and on the cross, he bears in his body the sins of all who would ever believe in him. He bears the wrath of God for those sins. He suffers in the place of sinners and he dies paying the penalty that we deserve to pay. He dies as our substitute. And he was buried. And three days later, he arose from the grave victoriously over sin, death, and hell. And then he ascended to heaven where he was seated on the right hand of the Father where he is still seated today. That's the gospel. And here's how people are saved. People are saved when they believe that message. And they trust that message. And they surrender all to that message. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling. So I ask you today, have you believed that message? Have you trusted that message for your eternal salvation? Because anything outside of that, anything added on to that, will bring you short on the day of judgment. Why is clarity so important? Because clearly understanding the gospel and believing it or rejecting it is the difference between heaven and hell. Here's what I want to ask you to do today. If you've never believed that message, if you've never confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've never trusted Christ in that gospel message, I want to invite you to do it today. I want to encourage you to do it now as we get ready for a song. Let's pray.